This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. Here's a question. Does God speak audibly to us today? This was a question recently posed to the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, J.D. Greer, and he answered the question in a video that got some attention over on the Gospel Coalition website. Here's what he said. I've never been comfortable um, putting God in a lot of boxes that he doesn't put himself in. And I don't know of anywhere in the Bible that says, no, he will absolutely never speak audibly again to man on the earth. Um, So I guess the answer has to be no. But I will say that, um, uh, you know, the Bible does indicate that the way that his spirit speaks um, is obviously through the scriptures. You know, in these last days, God has spoken to us through his son. And that includes, you know, the writing of the Bible. And so we shouldn't expect that we're going to hear from God that the way the apostles did and the, the prophets. Um, but, you know, one of the things that's really odd is um, in Acts, there, the Holy Spirit shows up 59 different times in the book of Acts. In 36 of the 59, he's speaking. Now, what's a little, you know, kind of frustrating for me sometimes is it never tells us exactly how he speaks. Acts 13, 2, the Holy Spirit said to Barnabas or said to the church, separate Barnabas and Saul for the work of ministry. Well, I want to know, like, how did he say that? Did everybody have this strange feeling in the heart? Did he write it on the wall or did he speak audibly? It doesn't say. And I think that ambiguity is intentional because God does not want us to have the assurance that he is saying things that aren't written in the Bible because more havoc has been wreaked in the world and the church following the words God just told me than probably any other phrase in Christian history. Well, now, this is a really interesting clip because it raises all sorts of questions about how God speaks to us today. Now, the writer to the Hebrews did note in chapter one of that book that in these last days, God has spoken to us in his son. But what exactly does that mean? And how are we to understand it in light of the Reformation principle of sola scriptura or scripture alone? Well, we're going to talk about it today with Don Green. Don is founding pastor of Truth Community Church in Cincinnati and also host of the daily radio program, The Truth Pulpit. Don, it's so great to welcome you back. How are you? Janet, I'm doing great, and I really appreciate the opportunity to be with you again. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, it's great to have you. Thank you so much. Does God speak audibly to us today? I'm curious for your answer to that important question, because there are some people who are really confused about that. Well, I think the, uh, I don't think I could state it more plainly or more dogmatically than answering simply no, it's <laughs> not. Right. And, and we need to be clear and unambiguous about that. I, I was so distressed as I listened to that clip that you played, because J.D. Greer was trying to talk and out of both sides of his mouth and have it both ways. It's Scripture alone, but it's not really Scripture alone. Hmm. And that creates a lot of confusion that a careful study of Scripture would never lead you to. Well, this is really important because he started out talking about, I don't want to put God in a box. There's nowhere in Scripture where he's definitively said he would never speak audibly again. Then he says, no, I would have to say, no, God doesn't speak audibly today. But you're right. That sort of opens the door a little bit, it would seem, at first blush, 
to say, well, God maybe could. Now, there are all sorts of theological problems then, aren't there? If you begin to give any credence to the idea that God could speak audibly, then who gets to say God told me or God didn't tell me or I got this vision or I got this message from the Lord? Now we're into a whole new realm, aren't we, if we begin to go down that road? You really are, and you've you've given no... You, you have evacuated the Church of any means of granting any discernment to those kinds of claims. They have to be taken at face value because you've opened the door for them to be accepted. And that is exactly contrary to what the Reformers did in the Westminster Confession, in the 1689 London Baptist Confession. They said the whole counsel of God was contained in the Holy Scripture, under which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. The Westminster and London Baptist Confession are identical on this point. And uh, a a basic study of, of Reformation theology shows that the Reformers would have had nothing to do with this. And so J.D. Greer is advocating a departure from the very formative principle of the Reformation. It's a very serious error that he's advocating and is now being uh, promulgated on the Gospel Coalition website. It's very disappointing. Well, there were a lot of Christians who were very disappointed about it and a little shocked about it. But, you know, this is an important thing. When we talk about sola scriptura, the scripture alone principle, one of the five solas of the Reformation that we have inherited as Bible-believing Christians, this is such an important thing, Don, for Christians to understand, especially those who may not be familiar familiar with the history surrounding the controversy about Scripture alone. Talk a little bit, if you would, about that principle. And for those who are not familiar with Sola Scriptura, how did our forefathers in the faith really understand that principle to be absolutely critical to our lives as Christians? Well, it's so critical because it goes to the very, the very issue of authority. Where has God spoken, and how do we know that He has spoken? And contrary to what was suggested in the clip that you played, Scripture makes it very clear. It it claims an exclusivity for itself about the place where God has made himself known. That's why you find the Bible repeatedly pointing us to itself to hear God's Word. Psalm 1, Psalm 19, Psalm 119. Jesus said in John 8, "'If you continue in my word, you're truly disciples of mine.'" 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that the Word of God is, is sufficient to make a man adequate for every good work. Everything that the Bible says about itself would be contradicted if, after the close of the canon, God's intention was to lead His people through audible voices and things that were outside of Scripture. Yeah. You cannot have it both ways. That's a great point. That's a really great point. So when he was raising the issue about the Holy Spirit speaking umpteen times in Acts, but asking, well, we don't really know how the Spirit spoke. Was it writing on the wall? Was it speaking audibly? I mean, the canon was not closed in the book of Acts, so isn't that kind of a moot point? That's really not the point of, of saying whether or not God can speak audibly, because we have the Bible now. We're not living in those times of the early church anymore. That, that's, that's a crucial point, Janet. Acts is a transitional book from the resurrection of Christ and his ascension to uh, through the apostolic age and showing the founding of the church in part through Paul's three missionary journeys. Right. And so we're not, living in the, we're not living in the age of Acts anymore. We're living in the age of the completed canon. And so we're not to expect 
th- those things and acts to be repeated here. Furthermore, if it was necessary for us to know how the Spirit was speaking in the book of Acts, God would have told us. The fact that Scripture is silent about that is not a means of disappointment to me at all. It's a matter of deferring to the fact that God has told us what we need to know, and we need to be satisfied with that. Oh, yeah. Excellent point. The other thing that comes to mind, and I want to dive into this in a little bit more detail after the next break, but when you think about the principle of Scripture interpreting Scripture, is that not an important thing to employ when we're talking about how God speaks to us today? Because it is easy for somebody to merely pull out one verse or one book of the Bible and try to make some kind of case that nobody else is really making when we can really interpret Scripture by reading the whole Bible and comparing these passages, I mean, this was also a hallmark of what the Reformers taught us. That's right. We take all of what Scripture says about all of itself and every aspect that it takes, and we take the fullness of biblical theology to reach our theological conclusions, rather than basing it on one verse out of context, or saying in the negative sense, there's not a single verse that that lays out this doctrine for us, therefore we're not bound by it. Both of those extremes are very dangerous. Right. And and also, does it not also come across as a bit of a, I don't want to say an attack, but the sufficiency of Scripture is also vital? Yes. The, and that's part of Paul's point in 2 Timothy 3.16, and also in Psalm 19, where it says that the the Word of God is perfect, restoring the soul. If Scripture was not perfect in itself, if it was not sufficient, we couldn't say that it was perfect and adequate for every need. And so this idea of continuing revelation is a direct attack on the sufficiency of Scripture, which the Bible itself says about itself. Oh, Don, what a great point. We have to pause for a break. We'll come back with Don Green. We're talking about how God speaks to us today. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today, right after this. This is Janet Mefford, and I'm joined today by Matt Bellis with Liberty HealthShare, a national nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry. Matt, tell us what Liberty HealthShare is all about. Well, Liberty HealthShare is a network of men, women, and children all across this country who voluntarily share medical bills with one another. And we do so without the advent of any kind of government program or third-party insurance. We're voluntarily sharing medical bills with one another what you would normally do with people whenever you had a situation that was unexpected and unaffordable. It'd be your friends and family and community that you would turn to. So we're a group of people sharing each other's medical bills with one another. How does Liberty HealthShare respect your conscience as a Christian? Well, as Christians, we are very much pro-life. And as an organization, we respect that as well. So you can be rest assured that if you are a part of Liberty HealthShare, none of your share amounts are going towards things that would violate your conscience. So we would never contribute or share money in something that would result in the end of an abortion or or go towards an abortifacient drug, that's not who we are at all because we know that's not who you are at all. Is Liberty HealthShare affordable? Well, a lot of people seem to think so, uh, and that's a big part of uh, what we're about. We feel that it's immoral 
to add expense or to uh, have backdoor pricing on a lot of health care bills. And so with Liberty HealthShare, we've done all that we can do to make the Christian tradition of health care sharing available and affordable to all. Thanks, Matt. More information about Liberty HealthShare is available at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or their phone number is 855-585-4237. That's 855-585-4237. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We're back on Janet Mefford today. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2 say it plainly. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. We're discussing the topic, How God Speaks to Us Today. My guest is Don Green, and he is the founding pastor of Truth Community Church and also host of the daily radio show, The Truth Pulpit. Don, we were talking about how God has given to us his word. And there you see in Hebrews chapter one, this reference to the fact that in the former days, in the former times, he spoke through prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. Now, I would imagine just like any verse in the Bible, somebody could take it and twist it and misunderstand it and say somehow, well, if he's still speaking, if he speaks to us in his son, then Jesus told me something, then Jesus told me something. But how are we to understand sola scriptura in light of that verse? How does God speak to us in his son and also in the Bible? How should we understand that? Well, scripture has has the, 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 what you see in Hebrews is an, an intention to recognize the principle of a progress of revelation from the Old Testament to the New Testament. God prepared the way with the prophets who anticipated the coming of Christ. Once the coming of Christ was fulfilled, there was no need for this further prophecy. And at the end of Scripture, at the end, in the end of the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 22, it tells us not to add or take away from anything in the written Word. Yes. And so, as you understand the progress of Revelation, you, you recognize the supremacy and the exaltation of Jesus Christ, and that He is the fullest revelation of God because He was God manifest in human flesh, you realize there's nothing more to say. And what Christ did was, as he prepared for his departure, he appointed apostles to be his representatives and to speak on his behalf. And that, that recognition of the authority and the unique position of the apostles is central to our faith, because the apostles spoke for Christ, interpreted his work, interpreted his life for us, and then at the end of their ministry... They said, this is it. Now you will know the truth by comparing it to what we have said, Mm. as 1 John 4 alludes to. Excellent. Excellent. So those Christians who say, for example, Don, what about my dream that I had last night where God revealed something to me or a prophetic revelation that I had in church one Sunday? I mean, they like to use the phrase sometimes, don't put God in a box. But how would you react to well-meaning, maybe youngsters in the faith who are saying, God speaks to me directly? Yes, I believe in the Bible, but I also believe in the personal experience with God where he really has a personal interaction with me that's on a deeper level. What do you say to that from the Word of God about those experiences? Well, it's 
it's obviously a challenge, especially as you frame the question with young believers. And what I would want to do with the young believers is to just encourage them to, con- as Jesus said in John 8, to continue in the Word and to study the Word and, and let the Word of God start to shape their thinking and to be under teaching that, that is verse-by-verse exposition of the Bible. Beyond yeah. that, I would say this as a theological point. The idea, it's a false uh, it's a false narrative, it's a false comparison to say, I don't want to put God in a box. It, it sounds like that's something humble that's being said, something deferential to God. But it's not that at all. What is humble is to go to God's Word and study carefully what He has said and revealed. What is humble is to be clear and accurate in the handling of God's Word. And when God has made it clear that he's not going to continue speaking after the coming of Christ and the close of the canon. It's not humble for me to say I'm not going to put him in a box. What's humble is to say God has spoken, and therefore I'm not going to look beyond his word to hear his voice. Yes, excellent. And what... Yeah, and so I'll stop there and let you take it where you want to go from there. No, that's such a great point. That's such an important point for people to recognize. And what I was thinking about is people who will say, for example, the Bible says that nothing is impossible with God. So God can do anything, right? So, you know, can God uh, lift, uh, make a rock so big that he can't lift it? You get these kinds of absurd questions. But the, the point is, Don, it seems to me God limits himself, if you want to say it that way. God can't lie. God can't sin, and that's because of his holy character and his divine nature. So when we start using these phrases that we think sound good or sound interesting, sometimes we're just missing the whole point, and I think putting God in a box kind of fits in that category, too. Yeah, I agree with you. His omnipotence, his power is his power to do what he wills to do, not to do absolutely everything, including things that are contrary to his character. And in the same way, the way that he speaks now is consistent with his prior revelation, not in contradiction to it. Amen. Well said. Now, I know that you have been doing a series recently on how God guides us today, and you have such great material and your preaching is so great. What do you think people need to understand about God's guidance in our lives through his word, because again, we're going back to this sola scriptura principle that scripture is sufficient. It is inerrant and it is sufficient for our lives in all matters of faith and doctrine and practice. How would you advise a Christian to seek the Lord and to seek his guidance in our lives, but in the way that the Bible prescribes we do it? Well, I think there's a twofold aspect that we need to understand is that is, is to understand that the sufficiency of Scripture means that everything that is necessary for us to live a life that is pleasing to God and to be under the hand of His blessing is revealed to us in Scripture. And so we start with obedience to His revealed moral will in the four corners of the Bible. When we come to those areas of life that are not addressed specifically by the Bible, who, who am I going to marry? What job am I going to take? Where am I going to live? To understand that God does not intend us to engage a mystical pursuit of some prior, uh, prior decision or some prior will that we're supposed to find as if he's hiding it. Rather, to understand that he's given us freedom to make decisions according to our wisdom and according to our desires that are secondary in those realms that we, we, 
we make decisions with a sense of freedom that I could do either one and still be pleasing to God. And in that, our confidence and our hope is not that we have a prior revelation of God and we follow that in these areas that aren't revealed to us. Rather, our confidence comes from the fact that we have a loving shepherd over our souls who is providentially directing every detail of our life to accomplish his will. So whether I go left or go right, whether I live in Columbus or I live in Lexington, God is directing that to accomplish his purposes in my life, and he'll bless me along the way. But we just don't need to get bound up and superstitious about trying to find these hidden messages from God about what we're supposed to do. The reason he's silent on that is that we have a realm of freedom to make decisions according to wisdom as we walk with him day by day in his word. That's excellent. Now, when we're talking about the Spirit speaking through the Word, I know that's a very deep subject and we don't have a lot of time to get into it. But you see, for example, in Hebrews chapter 3, the present tense, therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me as in the day of trial in the wilderness. So there are references in Scripture to the Holy Spirit speaking, present tense. But what do we mean when we say the Holy Spirit speaks through the Word? How should we understand that? Well, the, the principle is, is that we do not have a capacity to know God's will uh, in ourselves. Inside ourselves, we have no capacity given to us. Uh, we're, 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 we're sinners, and we don't have that. Our, our hearts are full of corruption. And so we're not, our hearts are not a fit vessel to receive inside revelation from God. We need His Word from outside us. And what the role of the Holy Spirit is, is to illuminate us, to take that objective Word and help us to understand it, to help us to be receptive to its authority, to give us the conviction that it is true. This is wrapped up in the doctrine of illumination. And so the Spirit helps our weak mind to receive, understand, and believe the truth and apply it properly to our lives. He speaks through that Word, not apart from that Word, and that's, the, that's why God's Word, the 66 books of the Bible, is such a precious gift to us, is that this is the place where our Creator has spoken, and we respect and elevate that Word and realize that it is the authority and nothing else compares to it. Not ideas in my mind, not some prophet speaking to me, not some extra-biblical book like Catholic tradition or the Book of Mormon, something like that. Scripture stands alone as our authority, and we respect and receive it alone. Well, and when you mention the Mormon Church, for example, this is another safeguard that, that we need to understand. If you begin to buy into this idea that God can speak to me audibly or apart from His Word, that's when you get cults. I, mean, I think we've seen a lot yeah. of that in American history. That's when you start getting people who say, oh, all the rest of you Christians have been wrong all of these years. God has finally revealed it to me. We have the authoritative, inerrant word of God, and we can check these people according to the word of God. God has given us the discernment to be able to do that. We just need to be the Bereans that the apostles commended the Bereans for being, which is checking what they were preaching against, again, the word of God. Yeah, that's exactly right. And when you realize that the close of the canon and the sufficiency of Scripture means there's no further revelation from God that is coming, 
you're, you are on safe ground to reject all of those things without fear of missing something from God or sinning against God. You can go in confidence in a way that those who are open to further revelation can never do. Yeah, all of this stuff is such important stuff for all of us as Christians to understand and to apply in our lives. The principle of sola scriptura remains. It is a safeguard, but it is our joy because God has revealed to us his word. He's revealed to us Jesus Christ in his word. We don't need his audible voice outside of it anymore. Thetruthpulpit.com is the website. Check out The Truth Pulpit hosted by Don Green, who's joined us. Don, a joy to have you with us. Thank you so much. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. We are back on Janet Meffer today. Remember that cleansing of the temple that the Lord Jesus Christ performed in John chapter two? Here's what it says. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Well, this biblical account of the Lord's anger doesn't always square with the image that a lot of people want to have about him. They would probably prefer to focus on a one-dimensional savior who's mild-mannered at all times, but that is not the full picture as we know of who the Lord really is, because it is true that Jesus did get angry. We're going to talk about this today with Tim Harlow, senior pastor of Parkview Christian Church in Orland Park, Illinois, and author of the book, What Made Jesus Mad? And Tim, it's great to have you with us. Oh, great to be here, Janet. Thank you. Well, thank you for being here. I think this really is true, and I know that you know this, having written this book, but what do you make of this false impression that a lot of people have of Jesus, that being angry is bad, and so Jesus was never angry? Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the flannel graph idea um, of Jesus, the, the hippie idea of Jesus, like he, he's been at Woodstock, and, you know, he just wants to go around and, and tell everybody they love their neighbor, and, and he did, he did do that. But what struck me was just how many of the red, red letters there really are. Hmm. When you start looking at all the, you know, the woes and all the exclamation points after phrases like child of hell and hypocrites, and and then you factor in the times when the Bible literally says that he got angry, um, it just caused me to think maybe it was time for us to take another look at at who Jesus was. And, you know, uh, the refrigerator magnet that says, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. To me, I just figured that's true. If the person in charge is not happy, we should pay attention. So that's what I did in the book. Yeah, absolutely right. Well, I think one of the misconceptions people have is that it would be wrong for God to be angry because angry equals sin. But of course, even the Bible says, be angry and do not sin in Ephesians 4.26. So how would you explain to people what the difference is between righteous anger and sinful anger? Um, it's a great question, Janet, because the truth of the matter is, the, the, the funny part about the whole thing is that Jesus, in his righteous anger, was usually only angry at the people 
who had righteous anger. <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, it was the Pharisees who were mad at him because he healed on the Sabbath, which was righteous anger, because he wasn't really supposed to be working on the Sabbath. So, you, you know, I, I don't think it's about what's righteous and what's not righteous, and I don't think it's about you know anger or not anger. I think this is this is a culmination of of the fact that we're human beings and we're going to be angry. And in our anger, it should cause us to, to reflect on what it is that's going on. I mean, sometimes it's in our own lives, it's selfish things. Sometimes it's, it's incorrect desires and things we have going on in our life. Uh, and obviously in Jesus's situation, it, it couldn't have been that. So if it is a, an anger that is legitimate, then what do we do with it? And, and again, what do we learn from it? Yes, that's right. So when you look at that passage about Jesus cleansing the temple and having the whip of cords and overturning the tables, how do you evaluate that passage and how do you better understand the anger of Jesus from that particular passage? It's um, There's two things I think that are really important. One of them is that it was premeditated. I mean, we know that Jesus had gone into the temple the night before. So when we talk about you know, I mean, it, it kind of feels like when we're reading that at face value that Jesus just went in and, you know, just went kind of crazy, just walked in and was like, what are you guys doing in here? But we know that he knew what was happening ahead of time. Mm. Um, but the fascinating thing to me as I started thinking it through and studying it was the uh, irony of the fact that I always was taught growing up that Jesus was mad because they were selling stuff in church. So therefore, we shouldn't sell stuff in church. And that's the big lesson that everybody took away from it. Right. When, I, when I really dug into it, um, you know, for one thing, the church is not the temple. So we, we need to deal with our interpretation of Scripture in a new way also all the time. Um, but, but what he was really seeming to be angry about was uh, the house of prayer for all nations that you've made into a den of robbers. Right. And when you go back and find out where the money changers were, where they were selling the animals, it was in the court of Gentiles, which was uh, the only place that people far away could get close to God, according to the temple and the way that it was set up. So the all nations part of that phrase is the thing that I think is even more important. Sure, I don't think Jesus was crazy about what was going on or the price that was being charged, but uh, let's think about where they were. And what I found as I started thinking through what Jesus was angry about was it always came back to somebody blocking access to the love that he came to bring us from God, from hmm. his Father. Hmm. And, I mean, it, it, that's the perfect illustration right there. Well, would you apply that as well to Matthew chapter 23, where the Lord is rebuking the Pharisees and really calling them names and calling them out? I mean, I, I happen to love that chapter because I think it's just so amazing to see the Lord laying out the truth about these guys. But would you put yeah. that passage in the same category? I, I do. I, and I, actually... You know, I've I've been signing books for our congregation, and my my scriptural reference I like to throw in is Matthew twenty three thirteen, that you're shutting the kingdom of heaven in in people's faces. Mm. I mean, literally, these behaviors that Jesus is mad about at the Pharisees, all the woes, all of you know the legalism, judgmentalism, hypocrisy, and and even the gnat straining, you know, indifference to human need. They all have to do with shutting the kingdom, making it harder for people to get into the kingdom. 
Yeah. Well, and, and people will read that and say, okay, that's how Jesus reacted to the Pharisees. And he was very hard on them because they were not understanding who he really was and what he came to do. But it's weird because there's this disconnect. There is a culture within a lot of our churches that says you should always be nice. You should always behave yourself. You're not really allowed to get angry because if you are angry, then you're sinning, you're causing division. I mean, what is the application when you look at the anger of Jesus in these passages that we've talked about and others to the Christian life? In other words, what does that tell me as a Christian about when it's okay to get angry? <laughs> it's a it's a perfect illustration for me because I live in the state of Illinois. Our church is in Chicagoland area, and uh, we very recently passed, um, you know, the most heinous abortion bill that there is yes. in the country. Yep. And, um, you know, I had to get up this last weekend and say, okay, so let's talk about how, as Christians, we should deal with these things, knowing that I'm preaching to a lot of people who are on all sides of the issue, and, and, and I'm trying to be careful with it. And, and for me, I think what, what it means for me is we should have opinions, we should vote, we should, we should do all these things that, that, that we have the rights as U.S. citizens to be able to do. But at the same time, I think we have to let go of the, of the idea that it, just because we bring in the God card, everybody ought to listen to us. People have a different view of who God is. So when it comes to our, you know, our ideas and our, our opinions about what things are going to happen, if it's people on the inside, Jesus was always very harsh with them. I mean, he threatened, he said it would be better for you to be, have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea. That was for the people on the inside. The people on the outside, we have to be careful how we deal with these subjects because we are, our father's goal ultimately is to have all those people back home. So that's the balance that, that I tried to strike this last weekend in my place. Well, and it is difficult because we're also to be the salt and light and, and to go out and to proclaim, you know, here we had the weeping prophet Jeremiah who was, you know, never saw the realization of God's people coming back. And that was an inside thing. But what about the place of the Christian being mad about the world in order to set the world right and say, pay attention. God is trying to get your attention here. I, I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, and, and you should, because this is what you do. But the salt and the light is a perfect illustration. If I have too much salt, it's not going to work. And as Jesus said, if I'm not salty, I might as well be thrown out and be trampled by men. Tim, so hang, on, hang on a second. I'm going to come back to this, but we do need to pause for a very quick break. What Made Jesus Mad? The book by Tim Harlow. We'll come back right after this. Hi, this is Janet Mefford for Preborn. Candace talks about finding out she was pregnant. Thankfully, an ultrasound provided by Preborn allowed her to hear her baby's heartbeat. The sonogram sealed the deal for me. My baby was like this tiny little spectrum of hope. And I saw his heart beating on the screen. And knowing that there's life growing inside, I mean, that sonogram changed my life. I went from just Candace to mom. Thank you to everybody that has given these gifts. You guys are giving more than money. You guys are giving love. 
Preborn has 10 centers that do not have ultrasound machines. Would you make a leadership gift and sponsor a machine today? These life-saving machines cost more than most centers can afford. Your tax-deductible gift of $15,000 will place a machine in a needy women's center and save countless lives for years to come. To donate, call 855-402-BABY, 855-402-BABY, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Many people in developing nations have no access to desperately needed medical care. That's why Mercy Ships brings volunteers aboard our hospital ship, the Africa Mercy, to give the world's forgotten poor the free medical care they need. We have an immediate need for registered nurses, especially with a pediatric specialty. As a volunteer nurse, you won't just give life-altering health care, you'll receive so much in return. It's an amazingly rewarding experience. You'll give hope and make a difference in the lives of those who have virtually no access to medical aid. It's such a fantastic thing to do. Everybody who I've met on this ship either wants to come back and do it again or they're already here for the second, third, or tenth time. So what are you waiting for? Show mercy to someone today. I would say go for it. Get more information and learn how to apply by visiting mercyships.org forward slash nurses. That's mercyships.org forward slash nurses. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today. It's great to have you along, and it's great to have with us Tim Harlow, Senior Pastor of Parkview Christian Church in Orland Park, Illinois. He is author of the book, What Made Jesus Mad? And we were talking a little bit, and I'm, I'm glad that you brought up this issue of the Illinois abortion law. That's my home state, too, and I understand how mad a lot of Christians are about the extreme radical nature of that bill. But you are right, Tim, when you talk about the fact that you have a lot of non-Christians in Illinois who don't know the Lord, who don't understand. And I think a lot of Christians say, well, I'm really mad about this bill. We need to push back. We need to be salt and light. You're also bringing up the important point, though, that for those who do not yet know Jesus Christ, they don't have the same understanding that we have. And, And how do you balance the salt and light with the righteous anger of saying, listen, we can't be about killing children. How, how do we balance those two things out? <laughs> I, I wish I had the right answer. I mean, I promise you, I'm preaching through this book right now, and, and I did the whole children block. One of the times Jesus is mad is when they block the children. Yeah. And, and, they, you know, and he says, let them come to me. And, you know, at the same time, uh, the abortion bill passes. So I had to address it because I, you, can't, you can't just sit back and say, well, it doesn't matter because it obviously matters. Right. But I think, you know, what you said about salt and light, that's always been something I've come back to. Um, light, you know, Jesus said, if you have light and you hide it, you know, it's not doing you any, any good. Hide it under a bushel? No, I'm going to let it shine. <laughs> but if somebody's coming at me down the highway with those new LED bright lights on, um, you know, that's not, that's not working very well either. There's got to be a place where we find a balance and where Jesus was interacting with the people, and the same thing is true with salt, obviously. You know, in junior high when a kid unscrewed the lid and you dumped it all over your food, that wasn't going to work either. <laughs> I, I think the balance is found in, in love. The funny thing is, you know, what Jesus was always mad about was denied love. Jesus was here to bring us love. So how do we love those people that we're talking to uh, who disagree with us on these things while at the same time believing and voting and standing for the for the rights of the of the things that we know we need to do 
and it's it's a salt and light conundrum. I really think that's always going to be. Well, and what strikes me, Tim, when I think the passage that's popping into my head as we're talking through this is in Revelation, where Jesus has the eyes like a flame of fire, and he who sat on this white horse was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. I mean, if there were ever a picture of Jesus that was not mild-mannered, it's that one in Revelation chapter 19. That, though, is a passage that expresses the anger of the Lord toward those who have not bowed the knee. And that's a Jesus we really don't want to talk about. So what about when Jesus and God, obviously throughout scripture, we see references to God's wrath. How do you deal with that as a pastor when you are exegeting those passages and explaining them to people and saying, listen, God does have wrath as part of his nature against sin and against rebellion, but but he's a holy God at the same time. Uh, I, it's a great question, and to me, I'm always going to come back to the filter of who Jesus was when he was here. Uh, you know, John's revelation and the and the symbolism in Revelation and the things that are going on and 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 Jesus fighting against the great dragon. To me, as I interpret that for people, it, it's not about God's kids that He really wants home. It's about the dragon and what the dragon has done to people and the people who decide to follow Him and the punishment that is that is that is incurred because of that. Mm-hmm. When I go back to the Old Testament and I'm watching, you know, the the wrath things that are going on, I really struggle with that, Janet. I really don't know because I'm going to come back to where Jesus was, what I know about Jesus and how he dealt with the people on the inside and the outside and that's going to be my model. And and I'm going to come back to that one way or the other. Did Jesus stand up for things? Absolutely. But Jesus really wasn't very political. He really wasn't, he wasn't about all that. He was trying to be, he was trying to teach us how to go into culture and into the place where we're at in a, in a way in which we can connect with the culture and help them find their way back to, to God. And I just, as I mean, I've been in ministry for 35 years. I've, I've watched where things have gone and I feel like we've gone from the Acts 2 scenario where Peter is preaching to the Jews who already know what they're supposed to know to the Acts 17 scenario where Paul is at Mars Hill yeah. and he's preaching to a bunch of people who really have no frame of reference for God whatsoever. Right. And, and I've, I've witnessed that. I've, I've lived that. And it's, it's caused me to change things as I do ministry. Well, that, you know, you're really right about that. We, we have seen the increasing paganization of our culture, even within our own lifetimes. And it's a little bit staggering to consider when you reflect back. You know, I, I can remember being back in grade school and we sang all the Christmas hymns in public school. And nowadays, oh, yeah. forget yeah. it. I mean, there's just no, you'll yeah. barely get jingle bells, much less Silent Night. <laughs> but I mean, this, exactly. yeah. So when you're looking at other passages, fill out the picture for us, if you would, because we've mentioned, for example, Matthew 23, where the Lord is angry at the the Pharisees and then also the passage of cleansing the temple. But how do you fill in the picture of Jesus' anger? Because you mentioned to the millstone passage, some of these other passages in scripture. When you look at some of those other passages, what is the fuller picture that you get about Jesus' anger and what we should understand about it? As you've mentioned, he gets angry at religious people when they don't understand what, what he's really all about. But what are some of the other passages that help us to see that fuller picture of Jesus' anger? Um, I'll, I'll answer that in two different ways. I mean, other passages are all of the woes, all of the you hypocrites. I mean, at one point, Janet, at one point, James and John, the sons of thunder, 
turn to Jesus and they say, man, Jesus, you, you were you were kind of rough on them. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were upset. And he said, yeah, I know. I mean, I'm, this is my paraphrase. <laughs> yeah, I know they were upset. And, and I don't care. They're blind guys. And if the blind lead the blind, they're going to fall into a pit. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's doing that over and over and over again. And, and, and the issue, you know, the, one of the other examples is he's healing on the Sabbath. Right. And, you know, right. he is grieved by the hardness. He looks at them in anger, and he's grieved by the hardness of their hearts. It's, it's, those, it's the same pattern, and that's what struck me. That's why I wrote the book. It's the same pattern of being angry at the religious leaders because they didn't get the idea that he was a doctor who came for the sick, and they thought that they were good enough to not need a Savior. Now, the irony for me in all of this is when I really started to process it as a current church leader, mm-hmm. that's when things changed for me. Because I, instead of going, oh, yeah, those Pharisees are terrible, They're, they killed Jesus, if I stop and I just take a look at my own church, at my own life, at my own attitudes within that paradigm of what made Jesus mad, it, it caused me to take a step back and go, okay, maybe I've got some things I need to work on here. Yeah, that's the, that's the easiest thing in the world, isn't it? To look at Matthew 23 and go, those guys were really, really bad and not be able to say, when am I really, really bad? When am I yeah. deserving of Jesus? Have you really gained any insight, would you say, on a personal level about things you might do, not to put you on the spot, but things you might do or other Christians might do that would make Jesus mad and that, that's kind of convicting? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, for, for me, I mean, th- and this, is, this, will, this will be a little out there, but uh, for me, one of the things I had to write about was the issue of alcohol. Mm-hmm. And it's because I moved here from the Midwest and I came to Chicago, which is a, you know, highly Catholic area. We're 80% Catholic people in our, in our area. And, and I was taught that alcohol was a sin. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, that's just all there was to it. And then I got up here, and, and it was just a very different attitude about it. Yes. And so it, what, what we've done in some cases, if I, especially if I'm going to minister to my kids' generation, the, the, the millennials and the, and the younger generation, they're not going to put up with, you're throwing these extra rules on, or as Jesus told the Pharisees, adding burdens to them that they can't carry, and you yourselves will not lift a finger to help them. We've got to be careful about how we look at everything, how we look at how we interpret the Old Testament and try to bring Old Testament rules into the New Testament, like with tattoos or, you know, you name it, as we look at as we look at the issues like alcohol, as we look at some of the some of the made up stuff. I mean, we don't have the Mishnah, um, but but we've done some of that in our own traditions, in our own churches, and we've caused. And I have too. Um, I, we we've we've caused them to go. Okay, wait a minute. I don't see that in Scripture. So you're adding to this, and you're making it harder for me. And and please don't hear me advocating drinking. I'm just saying, you know, it's not in there. So. It shouldn't. It shouldn't be something that we've added. And if we do that, it gets in the way. Well, and you're making a really important point, which is that you want people who don't know the Lord to hear the gospel and to be able to see who God is clearly and what Jesus has done for us and to not get caught up in the extraneous things to an unhealthy degree. And boy, this is really important stuff to consider. The name of the book is What Made Jesus Mad? Tim Harlow with us, Senior Pastor of Parkview Christian Church. Tim, it was great to have you with us. Thank you so much for joining us today. It was an honor. Thank you so much, Janet. All right. Well, God bless you, Tim. Thanks again for being here. Take care. 
Thank you for joining us on Janet Mefford today. We're out of time, but we'll see you next time. God bless.